Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Animals in People Clothes. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by The Max. Grab a burger and some drama at The Max. <laughs> Saved by the bell, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so good. Welcome to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is a show where we like to break apart films and see what it can tell us about uh, not only life, but the movie making process itself. Maybe we can learn something about lighting or camera work or, I don't know, chopsticks. And no our idea. opinions of and those of said things. <laughs> we definitely do that. Which we are full of. Yes. If you haven't seen Never Let Me Go, we'll be covering it today. So be aware of spoilers. I'm not a big fan of spoilers. Um on any level, right? You don't want to have any feeling. If I can walk into a movie having never even heard of the film, I am the happiest. <laughs> That's as good as it gets for me. You know what? You should just do that. You should just like, like hang out at, uh, at Alamo and just walk in and not even know like what you're going to walk into. Ooh, that would be interesting. You spend a day doing that. They should. Yeah. They should have that as a secret screening oh, Saturday or something. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be like, you don't know what you're going to watch. You walk. There you in. go, Tim League. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, but you are really good. Uh, I will say at not giving any reaction to a film or a show that someone tells you they're about to watch or watching. I maintain as deadpan as possible. Like complete. Like I mean, it pays that you're an actor. It's <laughs> you're a pretty good one because because when I I told you earlier about a, a the show I was about to finish that you had suggested for me and I was so excited about it and you were like oh okay <laughs> like there's nothing and I loved that it was great and well, so, what are you going to talk about uh, as it pertains to Never Let Me Go so for today we're going to discuss a lot of things uh, obviously the story and what it's maybe about I don't know I don't have a lot of thoughts about the theme I think they're kind of playing on their nose but we'll also mm-hmm. technically discuss some of the lighting the camera work framing and a couple of the compositions even some of the film stocks which i think there's a really cool uh, story about that i mean it's i wouldn't call it a story but i guess a, a note about that cool and probably some some other things as okay. they pop up awesome well uh here's a quick synopsis on the film the lives of three friends are recounted from their early school days into young adulthood when the reality of the world they live in comes knocking it's directed by Mark Romanek, screenplay by Alex Garland, based on the novel by Kazu Isiguro. Sorry about that. Starring Carrie Mulligan as Kathy, Kira Knightley as Ruth, and Andrew Garfield as Tommy. The problem is, you've been told and not told. That's what I've seen while I've been here. You've been told but none of you really understand. So I've decided I'll talk to you in a way that you will understand. Do you know what happens to children when they grow up? No, you don't. Because nobody knows. They might grow up to become actors. Move to America. Or they might work in supermarkets or teach in schools. They might become sportsmen or bus conductors or racing car drivers. They might do almost anything. But with you, we do know. 
None of you will go to America. None of you will work in supermarkets. None of you will do anything except live the life that has already been set out for you. You will become adults. But only briefly. Before you're old, before you're even middle-aged, you will start to donate your vital organs. That's what you're created to do. And sometime around your third or fourth donation, your short life will be complete. You have to know who you are and what you are. It's the only way you'll lead decent lives. It's a really strong scene. Yeah. Um, because it really sets the framework, right, for her, how these kids view life. Right. And I love the response after that. The, the papers fall off the desk and Tommy just walks up, picks the papers off the floor, puts them back on the desk and sits down like a good boy. Yeah. Oh, that was probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. I'm glad you brought that up because, wow. you know, uh, growing up, I grew up Catholic and, mm. you know, if you grow up Christian, you, you, you believe in an afterlife, you believe in heaven and you, and that basically means that, you know, you want to do good to get to heaven. Right. Well, what about those people that don't? Why do they do any good? Why are they nice to anyone? Why do they wake up in the morning? Like what, what's the point of any of it? If it's just all nothing, nothing, none of it's going to matter and it's just all going to be over. And yet they still choose to be nice to people. They still choose to pick up the papers. He, that kid had just learned his life is only lived for someone else. And he is not going to be able to do any of the things that he had dreamed, maybe dreamed for his whole entire life, short life up until that point, the eight or nine years that he was alive. And yet that happened. And his first instinct was to still pick up the papers. It was like, it was the most beautiful thing, that one little moment. And it's it's such a brilliant thing to write that in. Um, Yeah, I, I loved it. I just I love also how the uh, the teacher is like I'm about to drop a freaking atom bomb on these <laughs> drop kids. Drop some knowledge on you, and yeah. their reaction is almost indifferent. Yeah, you know it's it, it would be like I guess you finding out you know oh my god this is how quantum mechanics work and now I can access I don't know the the third dimension of uh, <laughs> I'm just like, okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think ultimately it also symbolizes the, the greater scope of the film, uh, being that it's, it's allegory or metaphor for life itself, how we view life and mortality, because, you're not kicking and screaming right now that you're going to die, even though it may be longer than what they had in the film. Mm -hmm. You're still walking straight towards death. 
You're yeah. not kicking and screaming either. Yeah. Um, and that's very much, you know, how we treat it. If someone had just told you, you're going to die someday, you'd be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's not yeah. a big deal. Yeah. Um, then, too, it also kind of reveals the world that they're keeping these kids in, right? Yeah. Because they're they're raised for this. It's not like they get to read Robert Louis Stevenson. They don't know about Treasure Island and like you can go on adventures. That's not a thought in their head. I mean, they can't even leave the school grounds. And it's like horror stories about anybody who does. Yeah. It's unfathomable that you would not live the life the way they're living it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has been uh, through the controlled education of them, which mm-hmm. I think there's some subtle uh comments that they're making about lower class society versus uh, upper class society. Mm. Like the people on the lower end are there to support the, the, the wellness of those at the top. Um, and I'm not necessarily subscribing to any view, um, but are going to even weigh in on that. Cause I think it's such a huge conversation with a lot of yeah. gray area, more the gray area than most people will probably appreciate. But I think it's an interesting thing that the only things they get to do are, <laughs> they they learn how to order in a cafe. Yeah, right. And it's like yeah. dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> and they just order the same thing that yeah. <laughs> everybody gets. Yeah, and that's the funny thing too is they didn't even learn it very well because later yeah. in the movie, right, when they're in the diner, what do they do? Yeah. They don't look at the menu. They don't figure out what do I want. Yeah. They look at their friends who have been here before Yeah, and they just, yeah, whatever they get. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so their education was so well done that they don't have any original thoughts. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? Uh, I didn't fully understand the, uh, what is it? They're trying to find their, their other or their, Oh, the original. Yeah. Their original. So they were cloned from their original. Mm-hmm. Is that where their organs go or they just go no. necessarily to anyone? To the so, highest bidder. But what happens if they find their original? Nothing. They just want to, See, see them yeah oh, okay. because i i would imagine there's a huge age gap oh yeah a 20 right. year gap right? Yeah, right so they were looking at that older woman like that might be her mm-hmm. her original and she was like that woman looked nothing like me yeah and so it became this weird hunt just to and that's ultimately still what we do as humans you know outside of this film we kind of hunt around for our origins like mm-hmm. where do i really come from yeah yeah and maybe that can help shine a light on why I'm here in the first place. Right. Cause that was as much as they could get was mm-hmm. why am I even here? Yeah. And that was something obviously Kathy wrestled with the most and had the most intelligent view and, but she still didn't want to tackle it. Uh, because as even as Ruth is bringing it up on the beach after Ruth finds out that wasn't her original, Kathy's trying to shut her up. Like, no, don't say it. You know, I don't even want to hear it out loud that where we come from is trash. Mm. so we're the trash of trash <laughs> it's yeah it's heartbreaking yeah to say out loud and i don't know about you but i've had those moments in life where i'm like i come to a really hard truth and i don't even want to say saying it out loud makes it too real mm-hmm. yeah for sure and i love all the little character nuances this is very much a, a bit of a character study and so thematic and heavy um content that this is everything that i really want in the film <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty super heavy. Very. Which I I love too. I I love heaviness and drama and and partially because it's hard really hard to do well. Yeah. It's kind of like um hard but in the opposite way of comedy. I mean, cuz sure. comedy is really hard. Yeah. 
but people go to either, you know, funny movies or to comedy shows to laugh. Yeah. So, you know, you have a captive audience that's ready to laugh, you know, um, it's harder to just make someone laugh out of the blue. Totally. Um, and like these moments, you know, at the end when Carrie Mulligan's standing at the, at the, the field, you know, like those are really hard. They're really hard to pull off in a believable way, not just in the acting, but the writing too, you know, and I mean, everything, cinematography and all that stuff. So it all has to come together. And, and this film does a really good job of doing that. Great job. I love that. It was bold enough to just go there to read this book, which I haven't read. I'll probably read it this year. But to read it and and to say, yeah, we want to, we want someone to experience this mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, it, there's no happy ending, there's no hope, mm-hmm. right? There's only, yeah. uh, to me, it feels more than anything like a service to the audience to evaluate your life. Uh, I don't know if it was Plato or Socrates that says, you know, the unexamined life isn't worth living. And so that's kind of the point that she makes at the very end of the film, right? That I don't know that we're all that different anyway. Um, Hmm. There's we all have an expiration date. Yeah. And it's just a matter of time, you know, are we living it as fully and meaningfully as possible? And to walk out of a film, yeah, it might make you sad to think death is coming, but it also should make you, uh, hopefully, you know, a little bit more excited about, well, what can I do in the meantime? Yeah. The time that you have left. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that is, I guess, a little gift that they had was that you and I, we, we wake up every day, we live our lives, uh, and we know we're going to die, but we, it's not day to day in our, in our minds that that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. You know, with them, it's kind of mapped out. They know how pretty much how long they have, you know, relatively give or take a couple of years. Um, so living each day is different, you know, for them just because it's so prevalent in their, their lives. I mean, their, their whole existence is to, and is to complete. And the other interesting thing that I thought about this film was, you know, it's like, you think about all of these, it just feels like a, a, a slightly different dimension, from this world, you know, like there's all these infinite dimensions, they say, where there's one little tiny difference here, or one little tiny difference there. And that's its own dimension because there's one little difference. And that difference could be something as small as Alice through the looking glass or mm-hmm. Alice in the, you know, whatever. And this is just like one of those dimensions where the world is exactly the same. Everything's the same. Only now we have clones and originals uh, that clones that we grow for organs. And that's just the stand. That's just the norm. And that was one of those things that really drew me to this film was that it's, it's actually like a sci-fi film. It's a, Oh yeah. You could even call it a fantasy um, depending on your view of that kind of science that you're talking about, but it's sci-fi without any overt flashy gimmicks. Yeah. It's yeah, just, it's, it's more of a mental sci-fi, you know, in, in the vein of primer, uh, mm-hmm. it's really understated and it's more about the, the people and humanity than it is about the technology itself. Yeah. Like what's the effect of this technology on humanity mm-hmm. and explore, let's explore that in a way that makes it feel like we're not in some distant universe. This is a real thing that's happening and let's see how that, you know, how that would play out. Yeah. Um, in a number of ways. And it just hits, hits with a hammer yeah. because 
they they do it so well. They didn't even set it in the future, right? Yeah, no, it's perfect. I, I love that they, they pretty much set it today, right? Right. Yeah. They set it what seventies, eighties, and nineties. Yeah. And they use all these textures uh, that was ingrained in the film stock. So they actually shot this on like two different film stocks to help better emulate uh, the passage of time and the eras. And so I couldn't find the article whenever there's, when it, when this first came out, I read the article that Mark Romanek was talking about, like, yeah, we decided to shoot this on uh, two or three different film stocks. And now I can't find it. I don't know where it's at. So I'm having to go off memory and just reading the, the tech specs, but they shot this on. So Kodak has made three main cinema film stocks, vision one, vision two, and vision three. Uh, Vision 3 is the most modern. It has the tightest film grain so that you don't really see the graininess as much. And then obviously if you go back in time, right, Vision 2, the grain is a little bit larger and a little bit more pronounced. Vision 1, you're, you can see a lot of grain. Mm. Um, so they've just gotten better and better at you know putting as many of these tiny, tiny crystals onto the uh, 35 millimeter film strip as possible in order to reduce the amount of basically you know today's terminology pixels. Okay, now right. we have more and more pixels, and you can see less of the pixelation. Um, and that same idea applies to the film stock. And so if we're going to shoot in the 70s, let's shoot on Vision 2. And that way we have a little bit more grain, and it feels more organic. We're doing something very specific here. They also shot it uh, anamorphic. And so whenever you do that... explain that? So anamorphic is a, a, what you do. To, you put on this adapter or this type of lens that's going to stretch your image longer so you're packing more on the sides of your of your image if you imagine like a square let's say you you put a photograph into a square and then you want to turn that square into a rectangle now you've stretched it out except for beforehand what you're actually doing is the exact opposite you're taking a rectangle and you're squishing it down into a square that'll fit onto the 35 millimeter frame and then in post, you squeeze it back out or you uh, stretch it back out so that everything's more proportional and isn't, you know, weird looking. You're not getting these really strange long shapes. Um, and in the process of doing that, it creates a lot of interesting uh, textures and feel to the, the, the frame itself so that things in the background or things that are out of focus still maintain a little bit of that elongated texture to it. So if you're watching a film and you see the lights in the background and those lights aren't perfectly round, uh, that are out of focus, the bokeh, as they say, the, those out of shape textures and the lights that are out of shape in the background, that's called bokeh. And if you see the bokeh that's not perfectly round, instead it's stretched tall, that's that's anamorphic at play. Oh, that's a good way to know. Yeah. Okay. And it does all these other interesting organic things to the film itself um, that just adds another element of, uh, I guess, personalization that suddenly it doesn't feel like you're watching something modern because of all these things that they've done, the film stock, shooting anamorphic. And then, of course, you had in a lot of the, uh, the lighting and textures uh, that they are using in the set design, uh, which we'll get to in a second. But I just love that he decided, hey, we're going to shoot this uh, anamorphic and on top of that they shot it three perf which <laughs> I oh, know is that so three what? perf if you imagine a the holes of the yeah that's the holes oh, on the side uh, of the film okay cool and yeah. so on a normal 35 millimeter film there's four perforations that you're 
you're viewing at once. And whenever you do three perf, you're reducing it to three, which means you're shooting a little bit wider, um, but you're also getting less resolution. So that makes it a little bit more grainy as well. And so they just did a lot to really age it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. And that's just, that's real cinematography. That's real filmmaking to think of all the little subtle nuanced ways that we can make this film appropriate for its time and also how that's going to affect the, uh, the, the mental state of the audience that's watching it. Like, how is this going to impress upon me? Because if you look at the, uh, a lot of the framing compositions, right there, there, there's a lot of stillness to it, which it feels like portraits, almost like you're watching, you know, portraits, which is a lot like the next film we're, we're doing actually. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's perfect, right? Because now you really feel like you're watching something in the past because of how uh, set in stone a lot of these these frames and compositions are. And so you feel like you're just watching a photograph that has people moving inside of it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these things that they're doing are just so well thought out. I just you know fawn over it, uh, yeah. especially when you start talking about we have an intelligent way to mix in ver- a variety of film stocks. That's... <laughs> it's right up your alley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you also have in here lighting and camera work you want to talk about. What 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 do you want to key in on that? So I I love that the the lighting was largely window light, mm. like which natural. Yeah. Uh, well, seemingly natural. seemingly natural. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of those things that people talk about natural lighting, and I think they don't realize that what sometimes a cinematographer might call natural lighting is more of a reference to the type of lighting they're going for. Yeah, instead of just the light coming through the window. Yeah, it's not like they yeah. grab their camera like, okay, we're ready to go. It's a multi-million dollar film. We're using yeah. this this Joker over here, okay? Yeah, yeah. They, this is a $15 million film, like yeah. you said. Mm-hmm. This isn't going to be just run and gun. Yeah. And so I love, though, that they maintain that very, very consistently throughout the film to the point where it looks like a lot of it is just a single source lighting. Like... And it's, again, the style. I, I'm sure it wouldn't surprise me to see some of these setups that they actually have a little bit of fill coming in to help their their fill to key light ratio. The key light being the main light that's lighting everything. The fill light kind of helps bring up some of the shadows. Maybe you don't want the, the dark side of the face to be pitch black. And so maybe gotcha. you either bring in a bounce card to reflect some of the light back into their face or you just bring in a whole other light. But a lot of it really looks like it's strongly single source lighting uh, coming in through the windows. And window light is often just super soft. Like if you want to take a photograph and have a really nice photograph, take it next to a window because effectively right now that means the sun is your your key light. But it's being bounced around so much because you're inside of a house. And for all that light to reach you, it has to bounce around all the way outside and then come through the window. And this window is this huge light source now that's diffused all this light from the sun and it's just bouncing in and it's super soft. And so you don't have a lot of these hard shadows normally unless the sun is coming straight through your window. But normally it's not, right? And so they do that. And I think there's a lot of reasons they do that. Um, for one, there's if the sun is on, if it's window light, that means all the light is on the outside. There's no light inside. It's dark, it's shadowy. They're, they're keeping them in the dark, 
right? These, these characters are in the dark, you know, literally and, you know, metaphorically, uh, they, they get the bare minimum for survival. <laughs> yeah. If you right. think of the sun as a, a source of life, yeah. they don't get that much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a lot of ways there, it's, it's symbolizing that they also lack control. They can't, they can go to the light, but they can't create it. They can never uh, have their own source of light. And there's very few times in the film where they have interior lighting. Uh, and I don't think I picked out all of them, but I only since maybe three or four of these these scenes. Yeah, I mean, even in the hospital, when she when Kathy goes to visit Ruth and they're walking down the hallway, there's no lights in the hallway. Nope. It's, yeah, it's coming in through the sun. That's a good point. Uh, through, through the, the windows. Window. Yeah. And what's really funny about that is if you back up two scenes. Right before that, they she's uh, Kathy is talking to the nurse. Oh yeah, it's super dark, and that might be the only scene where they have multiple light sources happening in the same scene, and it's all artificial. Yeah, because now she's in the room, she's in the place fulfilling their destiny in the surgery room, and where the nurse is, she's interacting with someone who's in the real world, Mm -hmm. and this is the only time where they get to experience their contribution to society when they're in the light, when they're in the know with the rest of the world, this is their place. Yeah. And so that's the only time they get to, wow. they get to experience that. Brilliant. And you go one scene forward <laughs> and she walks into the bedside to the bed where uh, Ruth is or where she's going to be. She's in the yeah. bathroom mm-hmm. and we're right back to window lighting. Yeah. And so they, and the other time obviously being the surgeries, and so it's just a really strong symbolic gesture to the world that these characters inhabit, but it's also beautiful. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it says a lot about the time period, uh, even though it takes place in well into the nineties, but they, so doing that alone, you're already saying you're going to have a very softly lit film. It's also going to be not super bright, but they, they wanted to aid that. And so what they also did with the color was to have a lot of muted colors. I mean, they were painting every single scene that they were in. Mm -hmm. Like we want to make sure all the colors are very muted and flat, you know, neutral tones. If if there's a blue, it's not a bright blue. You know, the only time they have a saturated color that I noticed was in the operating room with Ruth after she reaches her completion and you see just her blood kind of spattered all about. Oh, yeah. It's super red. Like, that's the reddest, most saturated thing in the entire film from what I picked out. Yeah. And the only other time uh, that you see, because that scene, I think there's one or two light sources, but it's artificial light. And the only other time we see interior lighting would be the uh, the sex scene with uh, Kathy and Tommy. But we ever, we never actually see that light source. We never see the lamp. Mm-hmm. It's just out of frame. Right. And it's still one light source. There's, I'm not detecting any you know, backlight. There's no fill light uh, that I'm sensing in a strong way at a minimum. But you do that with the lighting. You do that with the color. And you're just painting a very bleak picture, right? It's super drab. It's lifeless. That's their life. That's what they're dealing with. Yeah. And you can start adding on to that. Even more, they layer this so thickly. I always just thought it was just, this is what you get when you come to England. <laughs> <laughs> it's always overcast. No, no sun. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's always rainy or overcast or both. And maybe if yeah. we grew up in England, we'd see some stronger like symbolism of... Uh, no, I, I mean, what you're saying, it, it's, it sounds totally spot on. Yeah. 
And they add to that, of course, with the uh, with the camera work, locking off these shots. Right now, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of life in the camera movement itself, which takes away, you know, all the, the excited nature of of what they have going on in their life. There's minimal handheld shots. I mean, in the in the opening, you see the of the the first period, uh, whatever you want to call that, the first act. I only remember seeing like two handheld shots. Uh, when Kathy approaches Tommy after he's having his first yelling fit oh, yeah. and she gets and hit. She's hit. And then a couple scenes after that, whenever she's walking, I guess, in the garden and she's approaching Tommy again and she finds that Ruth is with him and she kisses him. And beyond that, I mean, throughout the rest of the film, there's still some other handheld shots, but they minimize it a lot. There's just not that much. There's some slow tilts, some slow dolly moves like that scene we played earlier. Whenever uh, they're all finding this out, you have these slow dolly moves into uh, Ruth and Kathy, maybe Tommy for a minute. He seems to understand the least out of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But they minimize a lot of this camera movement, right? And maybe it picks up a little bit after Hailsham, but not by much. Obviously, it just keep, continues to build and layer this world that that these characters are inhabiting. Now we're we're really just observers, you know, of, of what's going on. We don't identify too much in those handheld shots. Is the most you really get to, to empathize with everybody, but it's largely through their performances that you feel what they're feeling, yeah. and it creates a world of space for these incredible performances. But they do. I'll touch on two more scenes, the framing and composition. I mean, all of it's just freaking gorgeous, but they tell the story really well, especially in these two, these two scenes with the diner scene when they go in to order uh, and they five Cokes, I guess. You yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. And we have the, the couple on the right. Uh, I forget whoever they are. Um, I'm sure you're lovely people. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have our three people on the left. And what's excellent about that is you have Kathy, Ruth, and then Tommy. And Ruth is in between Kathy and Tommy. She's in the way. Ruth and uh, Tommy are together, together, even though the people who are really in love are on the, are on the outside. Mm-hmm. And then later in the film, we get to the beach scene with that boat that's just complete metaphor for their humanity. <laughs> you have this yeah. boat whose purpose cannot be fulfilled. Because it's out of the water and on dry dry land, and obviously you have these human beings who, just because they were cloned, you know, are deemed to be just as worthless and useless in terms of deciding their own destiny. And you have them sitting on the beach, and suddenly you have Ruth on the left, and you have Kathy and Tommy on the right. Right. Yeah. And now suddenly Ruth has removed herself. Right. She apologizes. And she's trying to make it right. And I love the the compositions here because you have Ruth is in a clean single. And whenever mm-hmm. you talk about clean and dirty, what you're actually talking about is whether or not there's anything in the foreground of those shots. So if we're watching Ruth in a clean single, that means uh, just Ruth. There's nobody else clouding up her frame. Whereas in a normal conversation, you might have these dirty singles where you're doing these over the shoulder shots between these two characters and you're cutting back and forth. And doing that can tell you a little bit, you know, empathetically about what these characters' relationships are. 
And so if you're doing these over-the-shoulder shots, maybe you do one person in a clean single and the other person is in a dirty single. Mm-hmm. And that might tell you that the person in a clean single isn't really engaged. They're trying to escape or they're not uh, as connected with this other person that when you do the reverse shot and you have a dirty single, suddenly they're trying to engage. And so it can really communicate a lot about what's happening in the scene. And in this case, when we do the the reverse, we're actually seeing a two shot on Kathy and Tommy and it's still a clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're getting a sense of there's a clean break happening here and the world is slightly being righted. These two people are finally together and she's doing the right thing yeah. um, by taking herself out of the equation. And it's simple, it's elegant and... And it's heartbreaking that that scene of when she when she completes to because because up until that point you're not like not the biggest fan no of Ruth no but she pretty much she redeems herself wholly you know so then you're you're rooting for her on her third her uh, her third donation but she just couldn't handle it no and why didn't any of them run. Just because it was beaten out of them in school to not run? That I think that just goes right back to the allegory. We don't run from our fate either. I mean some people might think they're they're trying, but But it wasn't it wasn't Yeah, but You could see that he was upset. But were there any like the way they paint the pictures that there were none like nobody ever ran. Which maybe. Maybe. You know? But I love his emotional breakdown. Oh my god, yeah. That it's, is yeah. just heartbreaking. No. To the tenth degree. It's it's so genuine and such an amazing performance. And is it is it also would you see it as a as a metaphor for just l- the world just taking from some people like everything? You know, that's, I mean, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm just, I think I'm that's just really to think. strong. I, there's, um, there's a lot to that, that maybe it's a little fatalistic, but yeah. maybe sometimes it does feel like your lot in life is to just be stripped bare until you're dead. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, uh, that was what I was thinking when I kept thinking, well, why don't you just run, just take her and go, you know, or take him and go. Um, but if I looked at it from the point of view of, of no, you know, this is what life does to some of us and we're the, we're the doctors doing the operations, you and you and I, you know, we're not the ones that, that does too, because, because we're stronger or we are just uh, more stubborn or, you know, we have like whatever, but for some, uh, because they couldn't run because they, it was the same fate, no matter what, you know, same as, as that's why I was thinking, you know, this could be a metaphor because some people, you know, it's the world we're talking about, not just this, this place in England. It's like everywhere. Yeah. You know, so they, there's nowhere for them to run because it's the whole world. I think that totally works. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really strong vantage point. Actually. I don't think I'd ever, glad you had my back on that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Cause I remember watching this film. Uh, I went to see it with Alyssa and some of her family and we afterwards, it was just, you could hear a pin drop in the theater, right? It's yeah. like, God, I just want to, I want to sit with that. And I love a film that makes me want to not listen to the radio on the way home. Yeah. 
because I, I don't want this moment to leave me just yet. There's something profound or something strong that I want to just, you know, meditate on for a little bit. Yeah. That happened not too long ago. I can't remember the film at, off the top of my head, but I left this film, you know, within the last week and I just turned the radio off and I was like, I, I really just want to sit in this for a little bit because in this, this is the film this is the kind of films that people need to be watching. Yeah. That they need to say, I can handle a steak. <laughs> I don't need everything to be a burger and a milkshake. You know? Right, yeah. Like, yeah. let me find something that challenges me that I can think about life in a deeper way. Because I i don't know that I've ever seen a film like this. And I've seen films try to tackle this subject matter before. And I won't say any films, lest I spoil them. But there are films out, out there that have tried to tackle this exact subject matter before and they just fall on their face. This subject matter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. But on that note, just quick question. What do you think of the ethics of that? Do you think if someone got a clone, is that clone now a person or property? It's a, fu- it's a fucking person. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> it's a person. Absolutely. It's a person because I think there's probably like a, a legal case. And no, that you could make that, you know, it's, why? Because it IP. wasn't made by God because it was made by man. And at what point I guess does humanity begin? <laughs> Okay, that's a different question. <laughs> well, if in that case, like then if humanity be, only begins through uh, human conception, uh, then it starts to. Well, see, okay, hold on. Because, because, you know, if you, if you talk to Christians, they say it's just at conception. They don't say it's at human conception. So that's a whole different argument that, that would happen if we start cloning people. But yes, it doesn't matter. It should They're be human. That should be. Yeah, but right. I think that's my bigger my bigger question is uh, what's oh, the, what what's the world? What would the world? Yeah, treat like, him as. Uh, well, I guarantee you. Uh, well, maybe not guarantee you, but I don't think that it would be so readily okay. Yeah, I'm not saying it would never happen. I mean, there's a lot of messed up people in this world, um, and a lot of groups of messed up people in this world that get a lot done. So I wouldn't say that it would never happen, but I would say that it would never happen without a lot of people like you and I speaking out saying that this is wrong and should not happen. Yeah. I guarantee there'd probably be wars over it. I mean, it's like, because you're not talking about like first term abortion, right? You're talking about here's an 18 year old human and you, and we're going to kill you. You could live, but we're going to kill you for someone else. It's, you know, that, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> that's murder is what that is. It is. But, uh, but yeah, I can definitely see groups of people saying, nope, nope. You know, if it's made by man, then whoever made it owns it. So your original owns you yeah. essentially, you know, I would, I would imagine. Ooh. Well, I hope to have an interview actually with a, lawyer who discusses the bioethics of human cloning. And so, Oh yes, that that's look, right. Look forward to that. It'll be a standalone bonus interview yeah. whenever it happens. So yeah, yeah, keep an eye out for that. Awesome. So overall fan of this film, yeah or nay? Uh, man, 
yay. I am a fan. I am a fan. Um, I'm not a crazy fan. Okay. I, I man, the performances were amazing. Um, the, the, the actual content was riveting and it was beautifully shot and well executed. And I mean, every way it just was, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, it's, it's hard to put a number on this one for me because it changes. Yeah. Depending on like what scene I'm thinking about when I think about the film or whatever. Cause when you brought up that scene of, of Ruth and the, the, the saturated blood and it just made me think of how I felt watching that. And I was heartbroken. I was just heartbroken for me. I was more heartbroken than even at the end when, when she was standing at, at the field and basically just accepting her fate, you know? Um, and we found out that Tommy died too, you know, you know, so when I think about a scene like that or the scene when Tommy was smiling at her before his, his completion and then just how they manhandled him after he was, he went under like it. Yeah. Both of those scenes broke my heart and I want to give it an eight, eight and a half. But then if I think overall it didn't stick with me quite as much, so I'd probably give it a more like a seven. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I could, I couldn't give it any less than a seven. That's for sure. I mean, even on a, on a bad day, it's at yeah. least a seven, which is really, really, yeah. really good. But I, I would, I would just because I'm thinking about that, those scenes now I would give it an eight. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What about you? Uh, for me, I mean, it's an easy 10, <laughs> like, an easy 10, an easy 10. Wow. I mean, you already have like my favorite screenwriter, uh, who wrote this, uh, Alex Garland. And then the subject matter, it's, it's more thoughtful and thought provoking. The performances are excellent. It's beautifully shot. And I mean, I could really just watch Carrie Mulligan act, you know, out yeah. the phone book. Like I just, she is just so incredible. And then to see Kira Knightley kill it, Andrew Garfield, this was the first time I, I remember seeing yeah. Andrew Garfield and I was just like, Oh my God. So I started watching his films at the time and he got cast on this based on uh, a film he did before called boy a, which was really good. Um, and had some similarities in his, in his demeanor and character, but yeah, you have just three knockout performances coupled with those kids who perform three knockout performances. Yeah. Like there is just, I have nothing bad to say about this film and, uh, maybe it's not something I could watch on repeat, you know, without like yeah, gashing that'd be, my, that'd be hard. my arms. Yeah. <laughs> but, Don't do it, man. <laughs> but I do. I think about this film all the time. I really do. Uh, and for that, that's even though it's not re- imminently rewatchable, it's still being rewatched in my head. Like maybe on a daily basis, basis honestly. I think about wow. it that often. Wow. Um, that often? Yeah. Jeez. And... Yeah, so I just, I really do love this film, and cool. it's one of those that I'll always recommend. Like when I'm feeling out a person, you know, who hasn't mm. maybe watched a ton of films, but they really want something good. Like, yeah, you seen uh, Never Let Me Go? <laughs> yeah, awesome, man! Just throw it on, see what you think. Yeah, no, it was a good call. It was it was a really good call. I enjoyed it, and I I I I had seen it before, and I didn't think that I had, but about ten minutes in. 
when I realized, oh, she's going to tell, that's right. She's going to tell them that they're, they donate all their organs. Oh yeah. I have seen that before. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it was a while ago. I think my favorite scene is, I mean, apart from the final two couple sequences with Andrew Garfield, uh, Tommy having a freak out and her voiceover carrying you through those, Mm -hmm. all those moments is the moment when Tommy's having this realization about the, the deferral and Mm -hmm. he's telling her is like, yeah, I figured it out. That's what they use our paintings for, you know, so that they can look into our souls and they can figure out, you know, if we're really in love and she, she asked him, was like, Oh, are you going to try then with Ruth? He's like, no, it wouldn't work. And you can feel this hope. Yeah. Blossoming in her heart that it won't work with her because you're actually in love with me. And they drag this moment out for a good 45 seconds. And he's like, yeah, it it wouldn't work because I never got into the gallery. They don't have any of my art. And then she starts crying. And that was the very moment she separates from them. She's like, I can't do this. Yeah. Cause this is an even worse slow death for me. Yeah. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, man. Gosh, that was a great scene, wasn't it? Such an incredible scene. Uh, And it's the performances. And the directing and allowing those moments to slowly unfold and trusting your your actors to deliver all the meaning because it could have easily have just been two characters staring at each other and you're like, okay, let's trim this down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. But they're giving you just oodles of of emotion and yeah so easy 10 <laughs> yeah okay got it easy 10 you have a long a, way of yeah. saying 10 <laughs> got it Jeez. so do you have a reco for the week i do um let's hear yours first so going off of my carrie mulligan like this is really the second film that kickstarted me i loved in education that got me watching her and then seeing this was like i'm crazy about Carrie Mulligan. And so I'm actually going to recommend shame, which is a excellent film. It's is that with Fassbender. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. really yeah, a fast yeah, yeah. Fassbender film, but she's in it and she's yes. Incredible. Oh my gosh. She's amazing in that. And this is also that the shame is what got me like crazy about Steve McQueen who went on later to win best picture for uh, 12 years of slave. And, it's such an incredible film. There's so many similarities between compositions. It's a character piece. Carrie Mulligan's in it. Go watch it. Awesome. I'm going to recommend something because of what you told me earlier. <laughs> I'm going to recommend Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. <laughs> because uh, Lee Pace is the bad guy in it. And I'm just a really big fan of Lee Pace right now. <laughs> for... Because I just watched Halt and Catch Fire, and it's incredible. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to recommend Guardians of the Galaxy Volume One. Awesome. And no, we haven't recommended that one before. Just we've done Volume <laughs> Two, so I'm just going to recommend that. Perfect. It blew my mind when you told me that. Oh yeah, that was Lee Pace. I'm like, what? Oh my god, it was. Oh my god, I saw it immediately as soon as you told me, and I got so excited. I want to go back and watch it again. So freaking excellent. Yes. Yes. Next week, tune in. Yeah. We're doing Mudbound. Yes. We may or may not have a really cool interview lined up. We're working on <laughs> we're it. Working on we're it. working on it. We had them and then we didn't have them, but I think we're going to have them. We'll figure it out. Drop us a note. Uh, if you want to hear us do a 
particular film. Like, yeah, uh, we we have Fight Club coming up in the in the pipe. Uh, thanks to buddy Steven who wanted to hear it mm-hmm. and we're more than happy to cover films that y'all are excited about. Um, hopefully they're good films. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever, like we'll do anything once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even yeah, we have been known to do the occasional bad film on this purpose. Very true. <laughs> uh, AKA the room, <laughs> which if you haven't seen, heard that episode, please go back and review. There's been a lot of fun with that film. Yes. You can drop us a note if you want to talk about this specific episode at the pestle podcast.com slash never let me go or just send us an email info at the Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll leave you with a quote of the day from Aubrey de Grey. The aim is to postpone frailty, postpone degenerative disease, debilitation, and so on, and thereby shorten the period at the end of life, which is passed in a decrepit or disabled state while extending life as a whole. I love that. So I've been following Aubrey de Grey uh, since like 2007. This guy is a, I don't know how to pronounce this word, gerontologist or gerontologist who studies aging. Hmm. And his whole goal, and he's he thinks it's possible in the next 20 years, which he's been saying for which the last is, 10 which is, years. Oh, well, I was going to say it was perfect because that's when I'll need it. <laughs> <laughs> but he thinks in the next, you know, 20 years or so that we'll have a breakthrough that extends our lives by, you know, maybe... 50 years, 100 years, maybe more. Wow. And he's really optimistic about it, but his whole aim, and that's what this quote is all about, is I don't just want to postpone life because what fun is living an extra 50 years if you're not able to... If you're to, miserable. Yeah, yeah. Your quality of life is going to be crap. What what fun is that? What use is that? So I want to post, postpone that stage of life until the very end and extend our overall lives itself. And I love that particularly because he's doing it in a much more nonviolent method than what you're seeing in this film, right? Because this is, as we talked about earlier, it's violence against people. How they got here isn't, you know, material. It's that they're here and it's how you treat people once they're here that really matters. Mm. And I love the idea that there's, there's a better way to tackle age and, and our wellness other than by stripping people of theirs. (laughs) Oh yeah. Great point so beautiful and yeah. I think he's just a brilliant dude and I'm rooting for him man now I want to check him out yeah okay <laughs> sounds beautiful well thanks for joining us everybody uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Never Let Me Go uh, please go out and watch it if you haven't um, both of us really really enjoyed it again drop us a line and let us know what you'd like to see or hear us do and please review us on iTunes and uh, and tell your friends come listen to us Uh, But until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies.